Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday, and Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. I'd also like to say thank you to Sean Reddington, who gave a donation to the podcast. I really do appreciate it. I do this full-time, and every dollar you give helps keep all of it going. If you want to email me, you can at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Craig Baird, C-R-E-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Today, I'm speaking with John Boyko, who recently wrote a book called The Devil's Trick, an excellent book that looks at Canada's involvement in Vietnam. We often think that Canada wasn't involved in Vietnam, but we were. Thousands of Canadians actually enlisted to fight overseas, and Canada was involved in various ways, from the humanitarian to literally providing weapons. So we're going to talk about that and his fantastic book that looks at that history. So let's get right to it. The first question is, what kind of inspired you to to write write this book? Well, what inspired me really was the book that I had written about the American role in, or the Canadian role in the American Civil War. It was called Blood and Daring. It came out in 2013. And the next book I wrote was about Diefenbaker and Kennedy uh, and Pearson. It was, it was called uh, Cold Fire, and it was about Kennedy's influence on Canada. Mm-hmm. And something that I found when I was in the Kennedy uh, archives in Boston was Kennedy coming to... Uh, Diefenbaker and asking him to help out more with the Vietnam War. And I thought, well, that's interesting that Canada's involved with Vietnam War and Kennedy wants it to be more. And then I found that when Pearson was elected prime minister, he went down to Kennedy's uh, family home and he asked, Kennedy asked Pearson, what do you think I should do about Vietnam? And Pearson told him, I I should get out. Mm -hmm. And and Kennedy said, well, any fool knows that. It's how. And so it was those bits of, of, uh, of information about Vietnam that led me to explore, well, I knew about draft dodgers and I knew about a couple of other things, but there seems to be something deeper here that, that I'm missing. And so that led me to write the book about Canada's role in the Vietnam War. Um, one thing that you do touch on in the book, especially early on, is um, Canada kind of had like this this 1927 New York Yankees diplomats, you know, our golden age of diplomats, the, uh, Pearson, all of these wonderful uh, people. And you do touch on some like uh, uh, Sherwood Lett and others. Why do you think Canada, we don't really know a lot about other than Pearson, these people who had a, a very large impact on, on on the world through the 1950s, especially? Well, 
part of what uh, you touch on in a number of items in in your uh, in your podcast, which I think is excellent, by the way. Um, I listen to it a lot. Uh, is is we have in Canada this humility uh, that any time that we do something great, it's almost like it's our job to degrade it um, and pull the people down who were part of it or to apologize for it. Rick Mercer once said that there should be a sign on the Rainbow Bridge coming over from of the United States at Niagara Falls that says, welcome to Canada, we're sorry. And so part of, part of it is that. Another part, I believe, and part of what, what you were addressing with your podcast and what I'm trying to do with my books, is to let people know that we have more of a history, a deeper history, a more interesting history than I think a lot of people realize. And I think it is those two elements that led us as Canadians to simply say that, well, after the Second World War, uh, Canada sort of went back into its corner and the big boys took over. Well, that really was not the case. Our golden age of diplomacy, we were, as as the phrase often says, punching far above our weight. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I have found with the podcast is Canadians have this view of us as uh, very different from the reality. Uh, you know, slaves escaped to Canada, but we ignore the fact that we had slavery. Uh, and then there's there's other things with the indigenous and such. But especially with the Vietnam War uh, in Canada, we tend to think, well, we didn't participate in the Vietnam War. We didn't fight in the Vietnam War. But like you say in your book, uh, and it's hard to kind of quantify the numbers, uh, but you know, as many as 30,000 Canadians fought in the Vietnam War, that's more than fought in Korea. So why do you think we have this view of, well, we didn't really fight in the Vietnam War, that was America's mistake, not, we, we weren't involved in that. Yeah, and, and it is really interesting, and you're right about the numbers. It's hard to figure out exactly how many Canadians fought in the Vietnam War. Um, it's around 20,000. The reason that we can't know it for sure is many were dual citizens. Many were Canadians who were living in the United States and signed up as Americans. Many who uh, signed up as Canadians then ch- changed their citizenships and became Americans. So it's, it's difficult to know exactly how many Canadians, just like in the American Civil War, it's difficult to know exactly how many Canadians, but it's around 20,000 20, people, a little bit more, a little bit less. Um, some people say as, as it could be as high as 40,000. And mm-hmm. it's also difficult to know exactly how many Canadians died in that war. But we know that there are between one and 200 uh, Canadians on the Vietnam Wall who gave their lives in the Vietnam War. And so it is really interesting. What I found really interesting is that I was able to speak to a number of Canadians who fought in the war. And one of them I feature in the book, Doug Carey who lives outside of Ottawa in a place called Carlton Place, who said that, and, and this was the most common reason, um, and it was twofold. One, we were in a war when it's communism, and here's where communism needed to be taken on. So we are fighting, in a, in a sense, for Canada because we are part of the war against communism. The second reason that a number of people, and Doug Carey told me was his primary reason, is that they grew up in the 1950s and 60s when almost every adult that they knew every adult male they knew fathers uncles teachers everybody around town had fought in the second world war had fought in the korean war and so therefore joining and fighting was just something that was expected canada was not involved in the war so therefore the vietnam war was the only war going on and they Mm -hmm. fought in vietnam for those essentially those two reasons 
Uh, and you kind of touch on it here, but one of the most shocking things in the book was the fact that the Legion wasn't really recognizing the veterans of the Vietnam War. Why do you think there was this resistance to recognizing veterans and those who fought uh, essentially for another country, but you know they were still Canadians? Why is there the re this resistance to recognizing them? Well, I think that that is exactly it. And the, the Legion was very clear and all my research in the archives um, was very clear in that there was an organization that was formed for the bring the Vietnam veterans um, together because they were suffering just as the American veterans were suffering from their ghastly wounds or the um, post-traumatic stress and the emotional um, damage that the war had caused. And so they were trying to come together. They formed a group and part of that group was saying, um, should we be recognized um, by um, the Canadian government? And the Canadian government said no. And by the Legion, the Legion said no. And the reason both the Canadian government and the Legion said no is Canada did not declare war in Vietnam. Canada was not at war with Vietnam. Now we were involved, we were right up to our, our necks in the war <laughs> in a number of, of aspects, but they said we were involved so therefore the Legion would not recognize them as veterans and they could not join the Legion as veterans and they couldn't even lay wreaths uh, at, uh, at Remembrance Day as Vietnam veterans. Now that eventually changed, but it took almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh you, you, I really like how you structured the book where you, you kind of started at the top. You started with the diplomats who were there at the very beginning and all the way up to uh, to the refugees who were fleeing into Canada. But I really like the story of, of Claire Colhane. And, uh, you know, why don't we hear more about stuff like that? Those people who were there, maybe not diplomats or soldiers or refugees, but the people who were there just trying to help uh, people like Claire Colhane. I don't know why we don't hear those stories more. I believe we do. Um, part of what I do is I write pieces for the Canadian Encyclopedia, and that's what my books are trying to do, too, is to say, here are some Canadians whose stories need to be heard. And Claire Colhane is one of them. She was 48 years old, a hospital administrator in Montreal, when she read a magazine article about a hospital that was being built by Canadians to be run by Canadians in Vietnam. And she signed up. She applied for for the job and she became the hospital administrator in um, a Vietnamese hospital, as I say, built by and run by Canadians. But she only lasted six months of her one-year contract. She became so distraught, not only by what she was seeing, by what she was seeing in the hypocrisy of the fact that so much of the weaponry, so much of the, of the things that were being used to inflict the damage that was putting people into those hospitals, such as Napalm and Agent Orange, was being sold to the Americans by Canadian factories, by Canadians were building the weapons that were being used to fill the hospitals that were Canadians were being um, were building and, and staffing in Vietnam. It was that hypocrisy that she tried to bring to Canada. And she wrote letters and she did protests. She did a number of, of uh, pretty outrageous stunts to bring <laughs> yeah. attention to the fact. But what she, she found out was that while she was thought she was going to bring the Canadian government's uh, uh, realization of what was going on here, she was flabbergasted to find that the Canadian government knew. It knew what was going on. And she was told, you want to be on 
Jean Marchand, um, Pierre Trudeau's um, good friend and cabinet minister, met her at one of her protests on Parliament Hill and said, do you want to be the one to tell 110,000 Canadians that they have to give up their jobs because we will not keep up the arms sales contracts with the United States? So that's what it came down to. It was an immoral war, but we were making money and we were creating jobs. And so the Canadian government and everybody else just held their nose and kept the arms sales going. And that's what Claire Colhane was showing. And I think she did it in a brilliant fashion. Absolutely. I, I loved um, when she met Trudeau, uh, like you related in your book. And uh, when she starts asking him the hard questions, that's when his, you know, his aide comes in and says, oh, we got to get going. We got a meeting or whatever it was. I thought that was just perfect. She didn't care that he was the prime minister. She was going to, she was going to confront him with what she, she wanted, you know, what she believed exactly. in. And that, that's really a great and thing to see. Thank you. And both of them laughed because um, they both knew that it, it had been set up. The yeah. were told, give me two minutes. And they both knew that. And when Trudeau was leaving, he said softly to, to Claire Colleen, you have to understand the pressure that I'm under. And she mm -hmm. said, well, what do you think I've been doing out here with this protest, if not to bring even more pressure? So, yeah. but, but it was it was interesting that, um, that Canada's involvement with Vietnam involved... Diefenbaker and Pearson and Trudeau. It was not one prime minister. It was not one party. It was the Conservatives and the Liberals. They were they were all in it. And and even before that, it was Saint Laurent that sent the first diplomats in 1954. Um, I don't want to say that we we ignored it, but why don't we know more about the fact that Canada? You know, not talking about the troops or the diplomats, but that we did participate in other ways with the war, like, you know, manufacturing Agent Orange. You know, most people will know what Agent Orange is or, uh, you know, napalm and such. But we don't really talk about the fact that we were manufacturing it. We were providing the United States with it. So we were having a hand in the Vietnam War in that regard. Why don't we focus more on that? Is it something that we kind of want to forget or is it just something that hasn't really been talked about? Well, Canada, um, we're a country, but we're also a conversation. And basically, like every country, we are having a conversation about who we are and, and who we have been and, and who we wish to be. Uh, we have conversations. The Americans tend to yell at each other in their conversations. <laughs> that is going on right now. But that conversation, um, it's, it's like conversations like this that hopefully people will listen to as books that I write and, and, and that other people write in films. And that conversation is no matter who brings attention to various aspects, me and this podcast bringing attention to the arms sales that happened in the Vietnam War. It is if Canadians wish to participate in that conversation, to listen to what is being said and to ask the next question. Right now, we are selling arms to Saudi Arabia that are being used in the war in Yemen, another immoral war that the UN has condemned, that Amnesty International condemned. And it's in the newspapers and people talk about it, but not very much. Um, I had an article in the Globe and Mail last week saying what we are doing in Yemen right now is just like what we did in Vietnam, an immoral war. We're making money and creating jobs, and we seem to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. So it's not just having conversations about Vietnam, which I'm trying to bring up with this book, but what I'm trying to bring up with The Devil's Trick, the book, is to say those conversations still need to happen because the same questions need to be asked. Mm -hmm. One uh, one way that I did... Uh 
find that Canada in your book uh, really kind of stepped up and led by example was through the refugees uh, in the last mm -hmm. part of your book where you're talking about all the refugees and the, the things they had to go through. I mean, three months of just waiting, three months on a ship uh, being attacked by pirates, like just to, just to get to Canada and then they get to Canada and they're dealing with, you know, so, in some cases racism and people who don't want them there. But do you feel like Canada was made a better place because we did open our doors? We did uh, let in, you know, tens of thousands of these refugees and provide them with a place where they, they can live and prosper and, and own businesses and, and whatnot? I really do. And what is interesting is that earlier in the book, I talk about the 30,000 or so um, draft dodgers and deserters that came north, all of the young men and lots of young women with them uh, who didn't want to, Americans who didn't want to participate. And Canada that Canadians really needed to think about, do we want these Americans here? Because they were blending in with the young people with uh, 1960s with their <laughs> long hair and weird clothes and weird music, music I still listen to, by the way. Um, and <laughs> they were saying, Canadians, Canadians need to say, do we want these Americans? And the majority did not want them. And when, as you say, we decided that we would bring all kinds of the, they were, incorrectly but um, conveniently called Indo-Chinese because they were from Vietnam and Laos and uh, Cambodia. Uh, thousands were, were trying to escape the madness of the post-war years. <clears throat> we had to decide, do we want these people here? We had government leaders, church leaders, and many community leaders, many well-meaning individuals that said yes and did all they could to support them with money and other supports to find them housing and clothes and jobs and all the rest that they needed. Um, but what is really interesting, I found, and it's not long ago, my mind, um, in, the, in the 1980s and 90s, that the majority of Canadians said, no, we do not want them. Even though church groups were at the forefront of bringing these, these Vietnamese Jews uh, to Canada, in polls with the laity, with the members of the church, the leaders of the church wanted and put all kinds of money and effort into bringing them here. But the majority throughout of the church going people said, no, we don't want them here. Now, with the Syrian refugees that, that came most recently, five or six years ago, mm -hmm. the majority of Canadians now say, yes, it is something that we should do. And we brought the Syrian refugees to Canada using the same system that we use for the Vietnam refugees. So, yeah, I think it speaks well of Canada with what we did and how we did it. But it also speaks well of Canada that we are progressing in saying that we need to be more compassionate with others. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you probably mentioned the Vietnam War and Canada's role in it to Canadians, most likely what they're going to talk about is draft dodgers and the fact that, you know, so many Americans came up here and, and settled. Um, do you think that maybe Canadians have uh, uh, a misconception about that, about, you know, maybe how hard it was for some to get up here, how some could never go back? And even after the, the pardon came about, there were some that like one you related in your book who went back and he was essentially you know, detained at the border in, you know, 40 years after, after he'd uh, come up to the Canada and he'd already crossed many times. Do you think there's a misconception that, you know, uh, that it was very easy, they just settled in and then that was the end of their problems? Yeah, I believe that, and, and, it, and I don't blame people for this. I thought it, lots of people think that. Well, that's great. The young people came up, they settled, we welcomed them with open arms and all was well. 
Well, it was at any time you pull up stakes and leave your country and resettle somewhere else, it is going to be hard. Um, one of the people that, uh, whose book I read named Jack Todd, who is now a sportscaster in Montreal, talked about how difficult it was to leave from a cultural point of view. What do you mean you can't buy beer in a corner store? <laughs> what do you mean you have to celebrate Thanksgiving in October? Those kinds of little things. Yeah. But other things that people um, were finding, especially the deserters, were they were not wanted here. And they were not allowed housing. They were not allowed um, to... to for jobs when people found out they were a deserter or a draft dodger they were fired or they wouldn't wouldn't be allowed to rent an apartment for example all kinds of discriminatory actions were taken against them now lots of people found that they were welcomed and joe erickson who i i know and um and spoke to many times in the writing of this book said he had a relatively easy time what he didn't realize and this is what he discovered and you were referring to in 2012 he is now in his 19 is in his 60s when the 1960s sought revenge on him he tried to get over the border this is after 9 11 so things had tightened up on the border mm -hmm. tried to get home to his uh native minnesota uh to attend a a um, high school reunion and he was pulled over at the border he was put into a small metallic room and he was questioned for over an hour and he had no idea how they knew so much about him in his questioning when he finally got released and got home his sister beth who i also got to meet and, and speak with several times talked about how the fbi harassed their family they lived in a farm and the harassed their family for years trying to get joe to return trying to get joe to and be a spy on others that were up there in Canada. And I had not realized that the difficulty some people had in Canada was one thing, but the difficulty that people had in the United States, um, the families that were left behind was quite another. And the PTSD that the soldiers, the Canadians who went over and fought and returned was felt perhaps not as deeply, but it was still felt and it was, and it was, um, it was diagnosed with validity in a number of the draft dodgers who were suffering from the same survivor guilt as many of the soldiers who returned because they knew as joe and other um, draft dodgers that i spoke to said that i came to canada but meanwhile somebody went to vietnam and suffered or died in my place and they had to deal with that for the rest of their lives mm -hmm. and and with the ptsd um when you talk about doug carey and how he's golfing and he sometimes he'll kind of catch a glimpse of something in the trees and it'll bring back, you know, even though it's 40, 45 years ago for him, it'll bring back the thought that there's somebody in those trees, there might be booby traps or booby traps in those trees. And, you know, we think that, well, time heals all wounds, but in many cases, especially with something like Vietnam, it, it goes on for the rest of your life and you have to find a way to work with it. Exactly. And he, he talked about um, the groups that he, he was with and with these uh, Vietnam vet groups that formed in Canada and the um, help he got from a doctor in, in Montreal that he traveled to see. Um, and this was very, very common among all the Canadian soldiers who fought in Vietnam, the American soldiers as well, but the Canadian soldiers as well. Doug Carey taught me or told me one day he was walking in the street and there was a bus that backfired and he leapt over a hedge and onto a person's lawn <laughs> and lied there just shaking with his heart racing and trying to, and he thought I, I, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. He said, well, 
see that kind of stuff stays with him, stayed with him forever. And I read um, account after account of people who came back and their family broke up, their marriages broke up, they had um, trouble finding or keeping jobs, the, the suffering that went on after they got back and the trick was as we discussed before they were getting no help from the Canadian government no help from the Legion they had to form support groups among themselves to try to get the supports that, that they needed to get through this mm-hmm. um, and this question can be kind of hard to answer because it's kind of speculative but uh, if Canada wasn't involved in the 1950s and early 1960s through those diplomats uh, and being in in, uh, in South Korea, would the war have turned out different? Uh, did we have a positive impact at least early on in trying to mitigate uh, the war and maybe uh, when it would break out or how bad it would be? We had a chance that was lost in in one, when, when the Vietnam War was not even beginning in the way that we think about it with the American soldiers in there, in 1954, when the French decided to finally leave their colony and go home, the Canadians were asked to form um, a group called the International Control Commission that was made up of Poland, the communist country, India, the uh, independent country, non-aligned country, and Canada, the Western country. And what we did is our soldiers and our diplomats were there from 1954, um, well, basically to the end of the war, but their most active period in 1954 when the French were leaving, when people from the north who wanted to come south or south wanted to go north Mm -hmm. um, were allowed to do and help. And Canada did a great deal of good in, in helping people to, to move when they wanted to move, to make sure that the French left, um, to make sure that both sides sort of played well. Now, did they always obey the rules? Of course not. Um, and there was violence and it was horrible, but it was better than it would have been. And that was when Sherwood Lett was leading the Canadian contingent. And so we did good there. The second way that I think we did well and maybe you were going to bring him up, but I'll bring him up now, is a man by the name of Blair Seaborn. <laughs> yeah. And Blair Seaborn was a Canadian diplomat um, who I got to meet. I went to Ottawa and met him. I, um, he was in his 90s. He's, he's subsequently died, but he was in his 90s, but still very with it. Um, and he told me his story, which I had read before, about the fact that in 1964, before the Americans went in in a big way, Um, President Johnson decided that he didn't want this war. This war could not escalate. And so he needed some way to speak to the North Vietnamese and he chose Canada to act as an intermediary. And there was Blair Seaborn Mm -hmm. who went and met with the vice, uh, with the vice president of the, uh, the prime minister of North Vietnam. And they made a deal. They made a deal by which the Americans could leave. They had advisors there, about 2,000, 2,500 advisors at the time. And they would leave and there would be peace in Vietnam. Blair Seaborn wrote cables back to Washington and Ottawa and said, here's the deal and there will be no war. There will be no bloodshed. If you don't take this deal, the Vietnam, the North Vietnamese will win. They'll win Mm -hmm. eventually, no matter how many bombs, how many troops, they'll win. What is interesting is that Johnson turned it down. The troops came in and we had the war that we all know. In 1973, when President Nixon signed the uh, Paris Agreement that that, uh, ended the war in January 1973, it was almost identical to the deal that Blair Seaborn had presented in 1964. So a long answer to your short question (laughs) is that 
Canada did good in Vietnam in the early years, in the, in the 1954, 55, 56, in mitigating what could have been an absolute disaster. Mm-hmm. And Canada could have done well if Johnson and his advisors had chosen to listen to that Canadian diplomat, Blair Seaborn, and ended the war before it began. Without a doubt. Uh, and then the last question is, if people want to find the book, if I know you're on Twitter because uh, we both follow each other. Um, yes. So, uh, you, you know, your Twitter handle, where people can find you, where they can find the book, uh, all website, anything like that. Well, um, my website is uh, johnboyko.com. Um, you can find me there and, and contact me if you wish. I, I'm always happy to hear from readers. And the book is available, as Stuart McLean used to say, it's sensible bookstores everywhere. <laughs> and it is also available through Amazon or, or chapters online. And it's an audio book and, and uh, Kindle and, and everything. So it's available everywhere. I hope you enjoyed that interview, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website. We will find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month, just like all of these wonderful patrons have. And I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurieann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.